Hello and welcome. I am Stephanie K. Baker-Jones, but you can call me KB. I have been engaged in living over 60 years, and I feel compelled to teach what I've learned in order to be a blessing to others. I'm a Black American, a retired Army nurse, educator, author, mother, grandmother, etc., I'm an artist, entrepreneur, and health ministry leader. There are so many things that I want to talk about that I can't narrow it down to a single topic or industry. Rest assured that you will be educated and entertained. Welcome to KB's World. Today, we are continuing our guided tour of Black American artistry. Jean-Michel Basquiat was born three days before Christmas. That's December 22nd, 1960, in Park Slope, Brooklyn, New York. That's a neighborhood in the Northwest, even though it was previously considered to be South Brooklyn. I was actually born four months before, which is why I kind of take, uh, take this a little personally, I was also born on the 22nd, so September 22nd, 1960. He was born in December, so 1960. So he would be my age right now if he had lived, 62. Now, his father was Gerard Basquiat, and he was a Haitian accountant. Now, the word is that Jean-Michel inherited two things from his father, a violent temper and a love of jazz. His mother Matilda was a first-generation Puerto Rican-American who spoke several languages fluently and loved music. Now, Mama Matilde visited New York's museums often, and of course, she took her son Jean-Michel with her. With this exposure, he began to draw compulsively at an early age. Now, Mama Matilde also recognized his talent and encouraged his artistic activities. Now, life got really bad at this time for Jean-Michel, so he was only seven years old, so 1967, since his parents' marriage had begun to disintegrate. Mama Matilde didn't take the divorce well, and she was left in a deep depression that forced the seven-year-old Jean-Michel to live with his father, along with his two sisters, Lassane and Janine. As uh, Jean-Michel became a teenager, and anyone who has raised a teenager (laughs) in the best of circumstances will understand the challenge of a teenager with a temper and a father with a temper. So given that reality, uh, their relationship grew increasingly violent. Now, records actually indicate that on one occasion, Gerard, Papa, actually pulled a knife on his young boy and stabbed him. But, you know, even with all this drama or maybe despite, right, or as, a, as an escape of <laughs> this drama, Jean-Michel's uh, love of art 
seemed to flourish. His teachers were just unable to stop his compulsive drawing. That's all he seemed to want to do. And he quickly gained a reputation of being extremely talented. But, you know, by the age of uh, 15, which was 1975, Jean-Michel was over it. Yeah, he had had enough of Papa Gerard, and he ran away from home, uh, which, of course, meant he also dropped out of high school. So on uh, some nights, he was fortunate enough to sleep on uh, the floors of his older friends' apartments, right, his older friends' But, you know, oftentimes he was, he could be found living out outdoors in, in Washington Square Park. And to survive, he began to make art in the form of painted t-shirts and collage postcards that he sold on the street. Now, this is when he created and developed his alter ego, Samo, S-A-M-O. That's copyrighted now. And so, according to him, uh, he and a friend friend named Diaz, they were, they were stoned, <laughs> right? So they were uh, uh, declaring the, the smoke that they were smoking uh, the same old crap. Now, they continued to smoke whatever it was they were smoking. And so instead of saying the whole thing, they would just say, same old. Some of y'all remember this. And so um, then, of course, it stopped being same old, and just became Samo, right? So you heard Samo, Samo. But anyway, he was one person who, in uh, he he copyrighted this, and this was this is who he became. And so it was a private joke between him and Diaz, but it obviously grew to be uh, part of his identity. Now, using this name, Jean Michel became a bona fide <laughs> graffiti artist. Now, what would he do? He would scrawl, right, write aphorisms on buildings of lower Manhattan. What is an aphorism, you ask? <laughs> well, it is a short, clever saying that is intended to express a general truth. Now, Jean-Michel had a couple. I'm going to give you one here, but please go research the others that he had. He also had um, a lot of uh, sayings. Remember, this is, this is a 15-year-old, 15, 16-year-old. This is who we're talking about here. Okay. So one of his aphorisms, which again is a short, clever saying that's intended to express a general truth was, you have to know the rules to be able to break them. Huh. Right? That's very astute for a 15, 16-year-old. One of his uh, quotes that he says, and of course he's got a lot, so again, go look him up, is, I don't listen to what art critics say. I don't know anybody who needs a critic to find out what art is. Okay, so this is what this 15 or 16-year-old is feeling about his art. Okay, so, so he's got this, though, now alter ego. And people begin to recognize his signature, right? So when they see Samo and they, or they see the work, they know, oh, that looks like the work of Samo. And he was embraced by the other graffiti artists. They loved him. So, and he was also doing his thing around the time of other artists like Keith Haring 
and Kenny Scharf. Now, by living in the West Village in Soho, right, he obviously had easy access to all kinds of drugs. And of course, we're talking again, a 15, 16 year old. So he's experimenting widely uh, because that's what his friends are doing and his you know, community, um, LSD, heroin, and cocaine. Now, obviously, from 15, 16 to 20, you're doing these drugs. So, yeah, it was becoming obvious by the time he was 20 because of some of his um, painting style, too. His painting quality got a little erratic, okay? But it was right around this time, and that's uh, sometimes the, the confusing or the, the bad part about these uh, short careers is that Right about the time when he was really showing dependence on the drugs, he got his big break, right? His success kicked in. Uh, his work was included in an exhibition uh, that was sponsored by Colab, which is uh, Collaborative Projects Incorporated. Okay, so he was uh, featured uh, alongside other artists, including uh, like Kiki Smith, Jenny Holzer and David Hammonds. Now, the paintings that he exhibited in his show, this show, (laughs) sold immediately. And he quickly came to the attention of Anina Nosi, an Italian art dealer who empowered him by providing him with a studio space, and she began handling his work for him. So, two years later, 1982, Jean-Michel is selling out solo shows in New York, Los Angeles, Zurich, which is Switzerland, Rome, which is Italy, and Rotterdam, which is the Netherlands. He's also chosen to participate in Documenta, which is an exclusive international exhibition held in Germany every five years, and At 22 years old, he becomes the youngest artist to be featured in the Whitney Biennial to represent the United States in an international contemporary art exhibition. So over 200 of Jean-Michel's paintings, over 200 now, are dated 1982, which suggests that he produced about five paintings each week, which is quite ambitious for anybody, right? But this 21-year-old dude was a painting somebody, okay? Now, do we think that's the drugs? Maybe, or maybe he just had some stuff he needed to get out, right? So he's he's putting them out there, but they're selling. So uh, again, we can't be mad at it. Jean-Michel's distinctive and original style, of course, developed quickly and steadily. I mean, that's all he was he was on his way up when he was on his way up. So he was he was doing his thing. So from 80 to 82 or so, um, because we're all gonna be talking about the we're only talking about the 80s because he, you know, died in the 80s, but so his paintings uh seem to be influenced by his graffiti background. And so he had incorporated uh, expressionistic skeletal figures and skull-like faces because, you know, if he's out there on stuff, 
you don't know what he's seeing. We don't know what he's dealing with. Okay. Um, for one of his solo exhibitions, he um, actually undertook a, a series of portraits of his black heroes, people like Charlie Parker and Jackie Robinson and Joe Lewis. Now, these figures were adorned with crowns or halos, which, of course, references religious iconography. What's he doing? He's honoring their majesty, right, in his life how he sees them. Now, he didn't seem to be concerned uh, with making the figures recognizable because sometimes he just kind of put their names uh, painted roughly across the top of the canvas. Or, you know, you recognize that language, yes, plays a large part or a large role in a lot of his paintings. And you, I even read where he was saying, because they, they talked a lot to him. He was very chatty. And so he's, he actually talked about um, the fact that he would uh, put words on top of words or he would layer words on top of words or he would sometimes cover one word partially with another word, which seemed to you know either create and confuse what was happening. And what he said was, well, yeah, I sort of cover up one word with another word or with something else because now you're going to be like, what is that word? And I'm going to be looking for what is that word? So I'm, I'm studying the, the project now. I'm really looking because I'm trying to figure out what is that word. And then when I find out what the word is, what was he trying to say, right? So he knew what he was doing, okay? He had folks looking and studying and trying to figure out what is really going on on his paintings. He would also layer uh, drawings uh, and photocopies into the surface of the painting along with uh, lists of supplies or groceries, <laughs> phone numbers, footprints, and food stains, which all contributed to the overall composition of each piece. Now, of course, his work later kind of drew a little heavily on his African and Haitian Heritage. Remember, he's got this extensive background of visiting these museums as a child, right? Don't forget that part. So um, even though he's young, he's got, you know, very extensive knowledge of these artists' uh, paintings, these works of art. He began to use imagery from his from the African American uh, and uh, Haitian heritage and using masks and ceremonial figures from West African cultures. Again, he was exposed to early modernist painters like Picasso and Matisse. With his now being in this profession, he has the ability to both comment on and move beyond the original influences of African art, right? And uh, he can discuss it relative to the, the masters, right? Because he saw it when he was a kid. Now that he studied it and he knows his own heritage, he can now make a comment because even though they're masters and they painted it, they're not African, they're not Haitian. So he has a commentary from his standpoint that is completely different and completely valid. And he's also a master at his work. Remember, we're, we're talking early 80s here. This, this fella is creatively bubbling. He's like a volcano, and he's erupting talent all over the place. So in 1983 or so, 
Jean-Michel was introduced to Andy Warhol. Now, we know Andy Warhol's name. He was an icon of the art world as well. Now, Warhol was fascinated by Jean-Michel's energy and the immediacy and forcefulness of his paintings. And, of course, it was a a bromance, right, because Jean-Michel was enamored by Warhol's fame and his glamour. So now they're working together. But, of course, Jean-Michel is also being introduced to some of the friends that Warhol has or the people that are in Warhol's circle. And one of these individuals was a young lady uh, that we know today as Madonna. So, yes, Jean-Michel Basquiat dated Madonna in the early 80s. And she had just released her song, Everybody, and was working on her star, her, her um, song "Lucky Star." Okay, so that was the time when she and Basquiat were hanging together. So he's like an ultra, ultra talented individual, and so is she. So of course, their synergy or whatever they had was probably hot and heavy. Which, but you can totally see it. So a lot of her work and who she is now obviously was was um, influenced by her time with Basquiat as well, because that's just how life works. Now, Jean-Michel began to work with Andy Warhol on a series of collaborative paintings that culminated in a group exhibition at Tony Shafrazi's gallery in 1985, right? So again, we're still first half of the 1980s, right? So he is living the life, right? He is someone who's an A-lister, he's hanging with hip people, he's, he's doing um, life. Now, here's, it starts to get a little uh, interesting. Well, not starts to get, but it gets interesting in that Warhol, who presumably is already out there in the world, starts to get kind of unnerved by Jean-Michel's drug use. Like, okay, dude, you are like really going overboard here. So Warhol was like, okay, that's a little bit too much for me. And he began to withdraw from their probably um, hanging together because he maintained that the friendship was still there. It was just like, I just can't hang with Jean-Michel. And um, it's reported that it was because he felt that Jean-Michel's drug use was just too much for him. He couldn't, he couldn't take it. And so, interestingly enough, and not, you know, for funny, not funny ha-ha per se, um, Andy Warhol actually died two years later. And so, and it wasn't um, for anything uh, nefarious per se, but he went in for a gallbladder surgery, Andy Warhol, went in for a gallbladder surgery, and he died of cardiac arrest. Now, so probably his heart health, was uh, affected by the drug use that he had engaged in. And remember, whatever drug use he was doing, he felt like Jean-Michel was doing more than that. So, uh, yes, it was uh, uh, Jean-Michel was, was, was doing whatever he was doing. He was out there. Now, we're still in the, in the 80s, but now, okay, so that was the first five years, right? So now we're getting into the later 60s, right? 86. And Jean-Michel, even though he's out here, 
he's, his work is starting to show uh, maturity, right? Because now you're seeing in his art um, his interests, uh, his, his heritage being reflected in his uh, work. And, of course, as he's putting out these works and these masterpieces that are influenced with his Haitian, African uh, roots, now he takes his work to Africa, right? So in 1986, he takes his work to um, Africa, and his works are being shown uh, in Abidjan, right, uh, on the uh, Ivory Coast. Now, of course, his works, there he, he's a success, right? He's a hit. Of course he is. And this adds to his continued international success. So now, again, now if he wasn't already on top, he's really on top now, okay? Now, what is also true is that Jean-Michel had really begun to lose control of his drug addiction, okay? And he seemed to recognize it because in 1988, he left New York for an extended stay at his ranch in Hawaii in an attempt to kick his drug habit. Now, they said extended stay, but according to, you know, what comes next, it was eight months, okay? So apparently he went to Hawaii. He stayed there for about eight months. He returned back to New York City in the summer, right, of 1988, so that's August, claiming to be drug-free. So he went to Hawaii. He relaxed and sat by the water or whatever he did, and he came back refreshed and claiming to be drug-free. And then uh, a little while later, August 12th, um, Jean-Michel uh, was um, discovered, had died in his studio in New York of a heroin overdose. Tragic, right? So um, thereby ending one of the most brilliant African-American art careers of the modern era. So at the time of his death, at the age of 27, Jean-Michel Basquiat had gone from being a homeless high school dropout to one of the world's most famous and financially successful artists. His paintings are included in the collections of museums worldwide, and his unique and individual artistic style receives critical acclaim to this day. Our next artist, Romari Bearden, was born in the bad time, <laughs> 1911. Okay, so 1911, this is less than 50 years post after abolition of slavery, right? 46 years to be exact, 1911, in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm sure time it wasn't it wasn't a happy time. I I I'm just gonna say that right. And so um, his family, his mother and father, uh, they decided uh, four years later, which would make it exactly 50 years after the abolition of slavery, they were ready to go. They they got out of Dodge, and so at four years old in 1915, uh, Romari Bearden was relocated. Uh, with his parents, right, uh, to Harlem, New York. Now, his father, Howard, became 
an inspector for the city's sanitation department. I'm sure he probably uh, started as a, what we used to call, uh, uh, or, or I should say formerly known as a trash or a garbage man, <laughs> but they became um, sanitation uh, officers and or technicians, <laughs> technologists, uh, which is fine. Look, I'm not, again, uh, you, you do your thing. So that's what Mr. Um, Bearden did, Howard. Now, his mother, Bessie, is a jewel. This sister was multi-talented. You will recognize her, right? Because this is this is the this is who we recognize, right? This is these are the loves of our life, right? So so Miss Bearden, Bessie, was or became a correspondent for the African American newspaper, the Chicago Defender. Again, please take these references, look them up, enjoy. Right? So she was a correspondent for the African American newspaper, the Chicago Defender. She was chairman of the local school board. Now think about all this time that she, she's putting in work, right? She was also the treasurer, national treasurer of the Council of Negro Women, and she eventually became president of the Negro Women's Democratic Association. She was busy. So you already know. With all this going on, the building, the Bearden House was where it was going on, right? That's where you wanted to hang out. That was the spot. It, was, it became the gathering place for writers, musicians, and activists. You could find on any given day the likes of Duke Ellington, Paul Robeson, Mary McLeod Bethune. Hello, can I go hang out in that room? <laughs> In that house, right? Be a fly on that wall. You would also find uh, Harlem Renaissance luminaries such as uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and Langston Hughes. So, yes, by 1929, uh, Ramari was 18 years old. This was the community that he grew up in, right? Now, he had been traveling back and forth to Pennsylvania with his family, obviously, to visit his maternal grandmother who lived in Pennsylvania. And considering he eventually graduated high school there, I'm going to have to guess that he probably stayed with his grandma quite a lot, right? His maternal grandma quite a lot. And since she had produced Bessie, who was a ball of fire and out there doing her things, I'm sure mama was the same way. So next thing you know, uh, Romari is enrolling in um, classes at Boston University once he graduated high school. Now, once he got in there, of course, he's young, he's athletic, so he was um, recognized as a pretty talented baseball pitcher, right? So, of course, he began to play for the all-black minor league team, the Boston Tigers, and he was their star pitcher. So, right, he had an arm. He was, again, handling his business. Now, he was also writing stories to contribute to his mother's place of business. So uh, I'm sure they're collaborating or whatever, but he's contributing by writing stories about baseball for his mother as she was working at the Chicago Defender. So not just Braun, right? He's got, some, he's got brains too, and we already know he's, uh, sort of, he's talented, right? Now, at this point, he really got noticed as a 
baseball star, and he was extremely light-skinned. So the um, baseball powers that be, of course, saw an opportunity to make a dollar or two. They extended to him an offer to pitch for a major league team, right? What an honor. How amazing. My talent's being recognized. Ah, bonk. So the Philadelphia Athletics said, yeah, come play with us. Oh, but one thing, though. Yeah, you have to pass for white. Uh, You can't play as a black American. You have to play as a white American. And Romari said, proudly, no, thank you. No, thank you. Because he knew that, um, obviously, you know, that's not worth giving up because he would be giving up his whole family, his whole life, his whole everything. And he was like, I'm not, no, no, thank you. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) So at this point, it seems as if he just decided, you know what, let me go ahead and pursue this art thing, my love of art. So he transferred to um, New York University to study art education. So he worked as a cartoonist and uh, arts editor for the school's journal, The Medley. More things to look up. <laughs> in 1935, he's 24 years old now. He, he completed his degree in education. That's why I do say, as an educator, you know, when we were handling our own business education, because, you know, to graduate from college at 24, okay, I'm just saying, we, we need to get back to that. Okay, I digress. So he began to make a living drawing editorial cartoons for the Baltimore Afro-American. He also continued to take classes at the Art Students League. And of course, now he's meeting other artists. And while he was at the Art Students League, he met a fellow named George Gross. So George Gross was a painter who obviously was using his art to talk about politics, which is a lot of times what artists do, right? You you talk about what's going on in your life. So he actually inspired Ramari to include or adopt a form of political and social realism in his own artwork. And so he sort of began to do that. Now, in the meantime, now, Ramari, remember, he's, he's in school and he's getting his degrees in education. So he wasn't just playing baseball or just hanging out. He was actually He graduated from college with a degree. And I have to say, you know, at a time when degrees actually meant something and you learn stuff. So in 1937, at 26 years old, uh, Romari took a job as a social worker for the New York City Department of Social Services. And he worked that job, right, for a while, right? Now they're saying this was a trend that you see. That's that's still a trend, right? You work a full-time job if you can get it, and then you have a side hustle where could be your passion, where now you're able to fund your passion because you have a full-time job. Yeah, that was then, and that's current and real today. So, yeah, this was the beginning of his serious engagement with painting, but he continued. He worked on this job for 29 years, and I say that is amazing, and I'm not mad at him, and you know what? He did that. That's what I have to say about that. So he would paint in his studio on the weekends, And after he finished his work, you know, when he wasn't at work, he was painting. That's how you do it. So by the early 1940s, he's 30 years old. He'd been having shows, right? He was having shows. He was living his life. He was doing his thing, right? And he had successful shows in Harlem 
and in Washington, D.C. Now, just as he was getting going, however, right? Oh, man, 1942. He's 32. World War II, right? But he enlisted. He felt like he needed to contribute, so he did. He enlisted, and he um, served two years in a black infantry division, and he received an honorable discharge in 1944. So he did two years, got out at 34, returned right back to New York, and began showing his paintings at the prominent Samuel Coots Gallery in Manhattan. Now remember, he's still a black American, and we still in 1944, right? So his art was being shown at a gallery that was also showing um, the works of artists that were considered to be top tier. People like Alexander Calder, uh, Fernand Laguerre, and Robert Motherwell. They were placing Romari Bearden's works in the same venue, so they considered him of that tier. Now, with three solo exhibitions <laughs> at the Coots Gallery between 1945 and 1947, there was no doubt, because he was obviously being met, his work was being met with critical acclaim, right? There's no doubt that he was doing it. And um, at this point, he's continued to perfect his individual style as an artist. You know, some of the, the critics try to say, he was confused. No, I, I don't think he was. I think he was doing what he wanted to do, and you just didn't understand it. That's what I think. So he was doing his thing. Now, his next endeavor was three shows where um, he displayed his perception of the passion of Christ. He produced 24 pieces that made a statement about the human condition. Again, I challenge you, please go look them up. Look and see what was he trying to say, right? What do his paintings say? 24 pieces that made a statement about the human condition. So we can, we're continuing. So now we're at 1950. He's 39 years old. Because he had served in the military, he was given some money, which we call the GI Bill. He was given the GI Bill, and it allowed him to travel to Paris. Now, again, I think, you know, traveling to Paris, like a lot of black American artists do, is a brain break, right? You want to go someplace where you are seen as an artist only, not like a black person who's, who's not able or capable, right? He went to Paris where he was embraced, where he studied, right? He studied philosophy, and he studied the art of the European masters. Now, while he was uh, there, he studied at the Sorbonne. And now this is, so, I mean, you know, they didn't often write down what we did overseas, but it's, it's written down. He met Picasso, Vermeer, Rembrandt, Matisse, right? So he rubbed shoulders with these great artists. He co-authored a book on Chinese art. So obviously that was something uh, he was also exposed to. Right while he was there, Chinese art. When he returned to New York, he had a new attitude. He was, you know, so he had just been in Paris for all this time. He was soaking up stuff. He came back and he sort of switched, right? 
he, you remember, he, when he grew up, he had a lot of music in his life. It was a large part of his life. And musicians had filled his home in Harlem and jazz and blues had continually influenced his painting. So in 1951, he's 40 years old now, Bearden founded the Bluebird Music Company with composer Dave Ellis and began to write music. 20 of his songs were eventually recorded, even though you know they weren't all hits, but he recorded 20 songs. That's, that's a lot. He wrote songs for a 10-year-old, Leslie Uggams. Okay, that's someplace to, somebody to go check out. You may have, you recognize if you've ever watched Roots, she was in Roots. And if you watch Empire, she's in Empire. Check her out, Leslie Uggams. Anyway, he wrote songs for her when she was 10, when she started her career. And he also had songs recorded by artists like Oscar Pettiford, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Billy Eckstein, and Tito Puente. So he wasn't just writing for nobodies. He was writing for somebodies. And, you know, he, so he was, he was doing it there too, right? He's a master artist. Now he's a master musician, songwriter. That's right. That's, that's who he was. And so Romari got married at the age of 43 uh, to a dancer, a choreographer named uh, Nanette Rohan. Now, um, historians are trying to say, well, you know, that allowed him to uh, go back and do... No, he just flipped the script on y'all again, right? He just started painting again. <laughs> because I guess whatever he got in Paris was now ready to be birthed, and so he did that. So now his work, his artwork, showed influences, right, of the, the abstract expressionists that he had seen, and he's created paintings that combined blocks of colors with dripping and splashing paint. Okay, so you got to look up his work, obviously, right? He also drew much of his inspiration from Chinese landscape paintings and the fundamentals of Zen philosophy that he encouraged countered during his studies in Paris. So, right, it makes sense. You would incorporate all of the things that you had soaked up in life thus far in your art that you're putting out today. That makes sense, right? So now, though, in his art, he began to include fragments of torn paper, right, into his abstract paintings. And then what he would do is he would layer paper onto the canvas, he would paint over it, then he would tear part of that away. So now he's able to create spatial effects in the paintings that were unlike anything seen in the work of his fellow artists, right? Nobody else is doing that because that's the thing that he's doing. Now, like many black artists of his time, while he's doing his thing painting, developing artistically, he's also becoming active in the fight for civil rights, right? Yes. So he, along with a collective of African-American writers, artists, musicians, began to fund the civil rights movement by contributing directly or contributing to a group they called the Spiral Group. So they would, these artists, musicians, um, writers would contribute to the spiral group and the spiral group would work directly with the civil rights movement. So we're talking, you know, early sixties. So that's what he would do. So, so now his work, so part of 
of course, who he is is always going to be activism for black American rights. That's just what you do. That's just what you do. So he began to utilize his torn paper technique in small collages depicting scenes of contemporary African-American life, right? So he began using, uh, again, his, his medium because uh, now he's able to combine uh, the social realism uh, of his early work with the tactile qualities of his abstract paintings, right? So he's adding in and combining all of his life experiences in his art that he's putting out. Knowing, too, that his artwork, the funds that he's bringing in, is funding the civil rights movement. So here in the 60s, he had two extremely successful exhibitions at the prestigious Cordier and Ekstrom Gallery in New York. Okay, So he's still putting out work and he's still selling out galleries. Um, the two exhibitions that he had uh, were both entitled Projections, which to me is kind of makes sense, right? So he's projecting what he's saying, right? He's projecting his worldview. He's letting you know what he's looking at. And so these exhibitions included collage images of the characters and, and social situations that were familiar to his Harlem community, right? He's showing his Harlem. He's showing the Harlem that he's looking at. Now, both of these exhibitions were quickly followed, quickly followed, by a retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in 1971, right? So what is a retrospective? Well, it's when you look back on or you're dealing with past events or situations. So they're saying, oh, wow, look at his work today. Let's also look back at his work from before. So now some of his previous works are getting double or a second exposure, right? Not only are we looking at his wonderful works from today, we're looking at his wonderful works from before. We're doing a retrospective. This was at the Museum of Modern Art, and that was in 1971. So with this kind of uh, work going on, you know, it didn't take very long <laughs> uh, after his uh, first collage for the Spiral Group uh, to establish him, Romari, as one of the most important and influential voices in the American art world, right? He was representing for black American artists and he was using his proceeds to support and drive civil rights. So branching out from his works on paper, okay, so again, don't try to be pigeonholing black American artists. He also designed costumes for the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater. Now, if you don't know that name or who they are, another opportunity to please look up Alvin Ailey Dance Theater, a black theater group, performers, amazing. So now, Romari Bearden, artist, musician, <laughs> is designing costumes for the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater. He also completed over a dozen public murals, that's 12, public murals depicting scenes of African-American life. So, yeah, he spent uh, the last 10 years of his life uh, dividing his time between New York City and the Caribbean island of St. Martin. Now, he died of cancer in New York City on March 12, 1988, at 77 years old. Uh, and his collages and paintings continue to be shown in exhibitions worldwide. 
Bearden was a founding member of both the Cinque Gallery and the Studio Museum in Harlem, which promotes and supports young black artists. And in 1987, he was awarded a National Medal of Arts by President Reagan. Romari Bearden became one of America's most prominent African-American artists through his creation of collage images depicting life in Harlem. He used his art world fame to promote young black artists and to support African-American musicians, choreographers, and writers. Jean-Michel Basquiat, a graffiti artist and painter that took the New York art scene by storm, and Romari Bearden, a painter, collage artist, advocate, who rose to the pinnacle of the American art world. These two, along with all of the artists highlighted on tour, can be read about in my book, KB's Black History, Volume 1, by yours truly, <laughs> me. Go to lulu.com and type KB's Black Heritage, Volume 1. Don't ask. <laughs> in the search bar. So KB's Black Heritage in the search bar. And voila, my book will appear for your reading enjoyment. Please like, follow, and subscribe to My World wherever you get your podcasts so that you'll be notified when I introduce you to the next two amazing Black American artists. Please always remember, if you want to be exposed to relevant education, and lifelong knowledge presented the only way I know how. Join me next time in KB's World.